Amen. What a good word. I love that song. There's so many good lyrics in there. Uh, I also love it on as a side note because I uh, mispronounce so many different words according to my staff. And, uh, and there's a particular word in there that I love because uh, I, I believe, look, okay, the name Barry, like Barry Sanders, B-A-R-R-Y, okay, or, or like the fruit that you eat, a berry, B-E, oh man, I'm not going to spell it, but, but let me, but then the next one is what? His buried body, right? So I say buried, and Austin and Dave laugh at me every single time. They say it is his buried body, and I was like, look, it's not a fruit you eat. Uh, it is a body that has been buried, uh, and so I love it if for no other reason than every single time we sing it, they think about how I pronounce words. So uh, we are delighted that you guys are here this morning, that we get to open God's word together and be sh- shaped and fashioned and changed and transformed together as we read God's word. You know, we just finished um, this past weekend. If you weren't a part of it, we, we just had our, our annual marriage conference and we strategically uh, make that uh, right around the weekend on Valentine's Day. We do that on purpose as a way for guys to be like, well, if I forgot to buy flowers, I'm willing to go to a marriage conference, so that's okay. Uh, and it's actually really good. It's deeply encouraging. And every year my wife and I do it, I'm like, I need to work on this, and we need to work on this, and it's, and it's good. And sometimes I'm tempted in this marriage conference, you, you know what, I, I it's, without fail, I always think of the movie The, Slant, the Sandlot. And I'm like, that's all the marriage conference you need right there. That boy at the swimming pool, you know what I'm talking about? His boldness? Yes. Well, maybe you remember the movie The Sandlot. Not necessarily for this guy's boldness at the swimming pool, but this classic baseball movie of younger days has this refrain all throughout the movie, without the movie. He says, that is when we got ourselves into the biggest pickle I could ever imagine. When this boy takes his stepdad's uh, Babe Ruth signed baseball off the mantle to go play summer ball with his friends, right? Talk about the biggest pickle ever. Maybe you can relate. Um, I know I certainly can. I remember my dad uh, at one point was like, hey, let's, let's put all of our investment into all these sports cards. And so when I, in my younger days, we would buy sports cards and memorabilia like you wouldn't believe. And uh, at one point, our water was, was turned off at our house. And um, I, I guess I tried to wash my hands, and, and the water didn't turn on. And, and I, was, I was a young teenager, and I forgot to turn it off. And we left as a family, and we came back, and the water had been turned back on, and the faucet was on, and had overflowed out of the bathroom sink through the water vents down into our basement, and was spilling down the walls and what, what was the one wall that it was spilling down where all of my dad's sports cards and memorabilia was at? That was not a good day for me. <laughs> so maybe you can relate about getting into the biggest pickle of your life. I wish I could say that was the biggest pickle. That, wasn't, that doesn't even, hardly gets on the radar. <laughs> Have you ever done something so bad that you knew it was going to be a giant pickle? And, and really, maybe more theologically, 
What happens when we sin? How serious is our sin against God? Well, I think Exodus 32 helps us answer that very question. And we will see that our sin must have atonement or we will suffer sin's consequences. And so we've been going through the book of Exodus. And, you know, admittedly, I've probably told half of the church this anyway, privately, so I'll just say it out loud. Admittedly, the beginning part of the book of Exodus is way easier to preach than the end of the part of Exodus, right? Preaching the plagues, preaching uh, God delivering Israel out of Egypt, that stuff is fun. But you get down to some of this stuff, and you're like, man, this is hard. And, and while Exodus 32 isn't as technically hard as some of the other parts, boy, it's hard on our hearts, because what we've been seeing is that God had delivered Israel out of Egypt through his deliverer Moses, and they have uh, gone to Mount Sinai. God has made a covenant relationship with Israel, and so after they make this relationship, God says, Moses, come up and hang out with me while I give you some more direction, and so Moses is on the mountain with God for 40 days and 40 nights, and we see that in that time, Israel has gotten restless, And so what we see in that time is what Exodus 32 is all about. And our verse of the series that we memorize to aid us in Bible memory, because, you know, when you're going through temptation, you're not like, hmm, now what was that Bible verse? Let me go look it up again. You need something on your mind, ready to spit out, to fight against temptation. And one of the best things that we can do is to remember the presence of God and his benefits. And so our memory verse, Exodus 33, verse 14, helps us not only understand the book of Exodus, it actually helps us when we fight temptation in doubting the goodness of God. So let's do ourselves a favor and do our neighbors a favor, and let's read Exodus 33, 14 out loud together. It's here on our screens, and it says this. And he said, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. Mm, What a good promise of God. Let's pray for our time in God's word. Lord, would you, through Exodus 32, transform our hearts and our lives and our minds so that we would know how serious sin is against you, that we would remember your promises, that you would remember your people, and God, that we would live lives that honor you. So help us to do that through Exodus 32 this morning, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as you heard, Joe kept reading. He's like, man, is this thing done yet? Because there were 35 verses in going here. And so if I were to spend even two minutes on every single verse, that'd be a long sermon. Okay, so I'm going to give you some roadmap on what's happening here. Here's where we're going this morning, that if you remember nothing else from what we talk about or when we gather this morning, this is what we want you to walk away with. Because Jesus makes atonement for our sin, we must side with the Lord and live according to his word. Because Jesus makes atonement for our sin, we must side with the Lord and live according to his word. That's what we want to walk away doing in our lives today. And we're going to kind of look at this kind of in three different ways. Uh, It just progressively gets bigger each section. The first part, we're going to look at Israel's doubt in verses 1 to 6. We're going to look at God's anger in verses 7 to 14. 
and we're going to look at sin's consequence in verses 15 to 35. So if you have a Bible, I encourage you to open up to the book of Exodus. If you don't have a Bible, we've printed Exodus 32 for you in your sermon notes. That's going to be helpful for you as we go through this. So you're not like, what's he referring to? What's he talking about? It's this chapter in the book of Exodus. So let's look at the first six verses of Exodus 32, uh, where we see Israel's doubt. When we enter this new section of the book of Exodus, uh, that is, that's different from, from all the regulations that God had been giving to Moses on the mountain, right? That ended in chapter 31. And, and now 32 actually begins this new section. Um, and, and it gives us really great value to the whole rest of the book. So the next three chapters describe Israel breaking their covenant with God. Uh, next week, Exodus 33 involves Moses' intercession on their behalf and then God's renewal of his covenant with Israel in Exodus 34. And so these three chapters interrupt the events that we would have expected to happen, right? God gives Moses the game plan on the mountain. He says, make this tabernacle so I can dwell among you. Here's what it needs to look like. Here are the rooms. Here are the materials. This is how you do it. You would expect the very next thing you do is like, okay, well, Moses is a follower of Jesus or a follower of God, so therefore he must be obeying God, right? Well, these three chapters kind of put a pause on that. And we, we see that it, it, it hasn't disrupted those plans, but we see that other things have happened in that time. So after Moses has shown all the plans for the tabernacle on the mountain with God, he would naturally come down and begin working on those plans, but it doesn't happen. And it doesn't happen because Israel breaks their covenant promises with God. Now, I don't know uh, if you remember your first major argument with your spouse, uh, but around that time, you probably thought, well, the honeymoon is over. Well, the honeymoon is over for Israel with God. And we get to see the real Israel. Moses was delayed up on this mountain, was gone for 40 days and 40 nights. And so it created this uncertainty in the Israelite camp. They were fearful of what God might have done to Moses. They thought that perhaps that he had killed Moses and because Moses had taken a while, and because there were no bells on their clothing, right from last week, the thought, they thought the worst, and they kept to the pirate's code that those who fall behind get left behind. And so Israel turned to the next guy in line, Moses' brother Aaron, and he wanted to give, and they wanted him to give them direction. And so immediately, censors should be going off in our heads right now, and we ought to be thinking, what is Israel doing? Make us gods who shall go before us, they said? Are you kidding me? Israel turned against the Ten Commandments that, that they had made that covenant relationship with God. Re remember Exodus 20, verse 4? that says, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or is in the earth beneath or that is in the water underneath the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord, am your God, am a jealous God. And they did it all with the help of Aaron. Yikes. And in verse two, we see that Aaron complied with exactly what they wanted. 
So he takes their gold and he makes this golden bull, right? So we think of a golden calf. This word could describe a, a calf up to three years old. If you don't know how big those calves are, go talk to Ryan Wise. He knows plenty of how big a, a bull can be after three years. And they thought that their leader was dead and they needed to do something and yet they did exactly what they promised they wouldn't do. They covenanted with God. They're like, we're not gonna do this. But Moses being delayed created doubts in the hearts of Israel. You know, I wonder how often we doubt God's goodness when his timing isn't on our schedule. Perhaps you wanted to be married and you thought it would never happen because it just hadn't happened yet on your schedule. Or perhaps you were waiting to see what college you're going to get into and you thought that it would never happen just because it hadn't happened yet. Or perhaps you were trying to have kids and you thought that it would never happen just because it hadn't happened yet. Or the promotion or, or getting on that sports team and we think that God must not have our best interest. We think God's power isn't sufficient to handle our circumstances because God's timing hasn't matched our own. But do you guys realize that if Israel had just waited just a little longer, all would have been good? They wanted this picture of God who was with them, and that's what God was giving to Moses for 40 days before that. The very thing they wanted, which was to know that God was with them and among them, was the very thing that God was preparing for them, but their sin blinded their hearts. But that wouldn't be us, right? No, we would never want a good thing and try and force it to potentially ruin the very plan of God and feel the consequences for our sin in the meantime, right? No, we wouldn't do anything like that. It's ironic that the people desired to have a symbol of God's presence after all that we had just read of what God was preparing. Moses had just received the instructions for the construction of the tent where God would dwell in the midst of his people, but it certainly didn't look like a golden calf. It was way more glorious than that. God's design showed this royal parsonage where the golden calf was just a mere beast. The calf degraded the greatness of God. And Israel wanted these gods to go before us. They were, scar they were scared. They were directionless. They were, they were like sheep without a shepherd. And so let us learn from this. God's timing isn't our timing. And God's plans are infinitely better than our own. And so when you, friend, are tempted to doubt God's goodness, to doubt his ability to show or to, to know your circumstances and, and to know your troubles. Well, friends, remember the goodness of God who does not withhold a single good thing for what we need to trust him and to follow him. So seriously, turn to your neighbor, like right now, turn to your neighbor and I want you to say this to them. Blessed be God, the God and Father 
of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Friends, that's just Ephesians 1, verses 3 and 4. And it's precious truth because God is not stingy. Okay, God doesn't have a lock on his wallet of blessing. No, God has not withheld a single thing that we need to trust him and to follow him. How important that is when we are doubting the goodness of God. It's easy to be confused about, about the word in, in, in verse 1 of chapter 32 and think that they're trying to replace Yahweh. Uh, I don't actually think that's what's going on here. I think there's several clues in our passage, right? We have to be good detectives every time we open up God's word. I think there's some clues that, that tell us that they're not trying to change God's, but they wanted Aaron to make an image representing Yahweh. Okay, so for example, look at the second part of verse 4. The calf represented the God who delivered the people from Egypt. Okay, that's not a new deity. Or look at, look at uh, in verse 6, this festival that was celebrated by the people in verse 6 was described by Aaron as to the Lord Yahweh in verse 5. Okay, so they're using God's covenant name. In verse 6, these festival activities resemble the very same type of worship that Israel did in Exodus 24 right after they finished making a covenant with God. Okay, so, uh, so uh, Israel wasn't trying to replace Yahweh. They wanted an image to portray him as being with them which is still a major covenant-breaking issue. Okay, we're not belittling the sin here. Uh, and even though they offered the correct sacrifices, their worship of the calf degraded the one who had delivered them from slavery out of Egypt. Had Israel been worshiping Yahweh correctly at his tabernacle, well, they'd be doing all the right things with these burnt offerings and fellowship offerings that they were doing here but it was forbidden in how they did it here in Exodus 32. And so this direct violation begs the question, what will God do? Which is what we see in verses 7 to 14 when we look at God's anger. But we need to remember that because Jesus has made atonement for our sin, we must side with God and live according to his word. Well, let's look at verses 7 to 14, God's anger at what Israel's doing. Because we know God's not blind to sin, to Israel's or to ours. And so the Lord said to Moses to go and deal with this. Uh, this is serious business. Uh, so serious. Notice how Israel is referred in verse 7 as your people, Moses. The language is a distancing of God towards Israel. God mentions two things he wanted to do. Let his wrath burn against them to consume them. 
and then surprisingly to make a great nation out of Moses. And so in contrast to Israel, Moses was assured that he would become a great nation, echoing God's promise to Abraham way back in Genesis 12. But we should see that sin against God brings the anger of God and the wrath of God. If we ask whether it matters what we do, or if we in our hearts think that no one will know, well, brothers and sisters, we don't live in darkness. And even the darkness is light to God. And so therefore, nothing is hidden from God. So Christians, we don't live rightly as long as we don't get caught. But we always live before God even if no one else ever knows. Sin doesn't hide from God, and Israel's sin deserved God's rejection. And so the description of Israel is one that we will see all over the Old Testament, right? In verse 9, this stiff-necked people. It's not an innocent description here, right? If you guys remember, uh, this is really cool, actually, because Uh, Exodus 32 is mentioned in a number of other places throughout the Bible. Specifically, if you remember in Acts chapter 7, uh, in Stephen, one of the first deacons, and he's about to get stoned to death, and he's preaching this sermon, and he's he's indicting the people who are about to sin by by murdering him. He's he's recounting uh, this very situation in Exodus 32, And he says this, he says that Israel thrusted aside Moses and in their hearts, because of the golden calf, they turned back to Egypt. In Israel's hearts, they longed for the slavery they had been freed from, not God. And so brothers and sisters, that's exactly what sin is. It is a desire not for God, but for the rejection of God. The psalmist said the same thing of Israel in Psalm 106 that talks about Exodus 32. It says this, they made a calf in Horeb and worshiped a metal image. They exchanged the glory of God for the image of an ox that eats grass. They forgot God, their savior, who had done great things in Egypt. I don't think Israel is this unique breeding cesspool of sin that's unlike us. I think we are often tempted to turn our hearts back to sin. Right? Because sin is exchanging God for something else. I love my family. I love my parents. But what they think is fashionable for me and what I think is fashionable for me aren't the same thing. There have been many times I have exchanged, right, a shirt for a different one. Sin is exchanging God for something created by God, but not as great as God himself. So I, I, my, my family loves to try and buy me clothes. I just don't do it very well. And so every single time my sister-in-law is watching, I apologize. She always buys me this great thing from like Nordstrom Rack for Christmas because they can do that. And I'm like, well, the closest Nordstrom Rack is like an hour and a half away from here. And it never quite fits me right. And so we always end up going and exchanging it. And I'm like, 
yeah, I just kind of would rather just have like a pair of pants or something. Like, I'm so, pl- I'm, I'm boring. But so, so we exchange things for something else, right? Um, and, and that's what we do here with sin as well. Is that we, sin is exchanging God for something created by God, but just not as great as God himself. And so when we exchange God for something else, well, we are believing two lies. We're believing, one, that God isn't as great as he says he is, and two, that this other thing will do more for me than what God will. And so the greatest fight against a lie is the greatest truth ever known, the gospel. Here's why God is better than anything else in the universe that we would try and replace him with. Because God's the creator of the universe. He created everything that we see. He has created us, and he has created us specially to be in relationship with him, to know him, to walk with him, to know his goodness. And we've rebelled against him. We have exchanged God for something less than God, that we try to turn into God, that we give our time and our affection and and our treasures to. And so that we have rebelled against God by trying to replace him sometimes with ourselves, trying to be our own gods. And so God, who is the king of the universe, says, I'm not going to let this rebellion last forever. And so our rebellion is what the Bible calls sin. And so we have sinned against God. We have broken our relationship with God. And the consequence for our actions of rebellion against God is that we receive death and judgment for what we've rightly done. It's not an unjust punishment It is a very just punishment against a very holy and God who is the king of the universe. And yet God in his kindness and in his mercy did not say, I'm done with you all. Instead, he sent his only son, Jesus, to earth to live a perfect life, never in rebellion against us, never in rebellion against God. Uh, He lived the perfect life for us. He then stepped in our place to be, take on the punishment for our sin, though Jesus had never done anything wrong. Jesus lived the perfect life. He died our death that we deserved. On the cross, he hung there until he said, it is finished, where he breathed his last and his payment for sin was complete. And then Jesus on the third day rose from the grave, rose from the dead, conquering sin, conquering death, showing that his death has been full payment for our sins so that we no longer have to long for our days in slavery to sin, but we can know God and we can know forgiveness and be with him and know his presence and find rest in him. The very thing that God is doing for Israel here at Mount Sinai. He's rescued them from slavery in Egypt. He makes a covenant with them and he says, you will know my presence. God has promised that in a bigger way through Jesus because that covenant can't break because Jesus' blood is better than everything that they did in the Old Testament. And so God through Jesus has not made us permanently separated from God but has brought us near to him. And that is the greatest news that we could ever have when we need to fight against the lies that think that God isn't as good as he says he is or that something else will give us more pleasure than God because it's just not true. God is greater than everything else in the universe. And we need to remind ourselves of that by reminding ourselves of the gospel. Because we see it right here. 
Moses didn't head back down the mountain immediately after Israel sinned, right? He, he instead tried to intercede for Israel. Uh, notice this possessive adjective that I've already pointed out, right? The your people, your people, right? That's a possessive adjective. At least I think it is. You can ask Mrs. Rowling afterward, the English teacher, if that's true. Um, Moses is calling Israel, your people, back to God in verse 11. And so to Moses' credit, Moses revealed no desire to replace Abraham. Moses was even willing to offer the loss of his eternal life rather than to see the nation of Israel be eliminated from the earth. Man, that's incredible in verse 32. And so Moses appeals to God with kind of three different arguments. If you had to destroy Israel, Moses says, well, well the, then the display of your power in Egypt will be viewed as useless, right? That's why he says, whom you brought out of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand. The second appeal that Moses makes to God, he says, well, Israel, uh, well Egypt will delight in seeing the Israelites destroyed by their own God. Right? That's why he says the Egyptians would say it was with evil intent that he brought them out. And the third way that Moses uh, intercedes on behalf of Israel to God, and the third thing that he brings up, he says, why should God go back on his promises to Abraham? Right? That's why he says, remember your servants, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And the result is that God relented and he did not destroy them. Note of, notice again this possessive adjective that's describing Israel in verse 14. It's now his people, God's people once again. In verse 14 it says, And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of, bringing on his people. Moses made no attempt to excuse the people's sinful behavior. It, it was compelling enough at, for what Moses did say, and so God relented from the immediate destruction of the people, uh, though we do see that they didn't go unpunished. And so oftentimes we have to ask ourselves as Christians, what do we do with verse 14? D did God repent? Did God change his mind? How do we understand this? Does God change his will? Is God inconsistent? Uh, we use the word repent almost exclusively today in terms of sin. Uh, but that's not necessarily the case of how that word has always been used. Uh, God did not do something wrong which brought sin upon them. Okay, so, so in the ESV, in verse 14, you see, and the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing to his people. Maybe you're reading the King James Version where it does say, and the Lord repented of the evil which he brought unto his people. Okay, the, the, in, in the 1600s, when they're using the word repent, they are not meaning it exclusively to a sinful action, but in a change of action. Or think of the Tyndale Bible, which actually came out before the King James Version. And it says, and the Lord refrained himself. Or the Wycliffe Bible also came out before the King James. It says, and the Lord was pleased that he did not yield that which he spoke of his people. Or maybe you're using the NIV, 
that says, Then the Lord relented and did not bring on his people the disaster he had threatened. And so what we see here is, is a description of trying to ha- work out where does, uh, where does our sin fit into play with God's plans in the world. If you might, something helpful with this is, is the book of Amos, actually. When God was announcing to a prophet that he was about to do something was actually a way of inviting intercession on behalf of those people. So we see this in Amos chapter 7. God showed Amos this future judgment upon Israel, and then Amos has this intercession, and God relents. In that same context, God is clearly inviting Amos to intercede so that God might show his mercy, so that God would relent. Maybe more similarly, you might remember the book of Jonah, right? The story with the big fish. Uh, Jonah was required to proclaim this announcement that Nineveh would be destroyed in 40 days' time. It was a message that Jonah reluctantly gave, if you know the story, because he knew it represented an invitation to repent and not an irreversible condemnation. God, in fact, actually, if you remember the end of Jonah, that's why he's so angry. Do you guys remember that? He's a bitter old man at the end of this book. He's like, I knew you were going to do this, God. I knew you would show them mercy. He's upset about it. He's like, you're the type of God that does this. We shouldn't be upset by that, okay? We should be very happy about that. And so here, God is inviting Moses to intercede so that God would show mercy. God relented does not mean the same thing as that God has done something wrong, nor does it mean that God has done nothing, right? So if we think that God, when we see that God has relented, we think, well, Israel hasn't learned their lesson at all. So instead of destroying them, God punishes them with a plague, a lesser punishment, but is by no means an acquittal. God uses people's intercession to bring about his sovereign will. He even uses our prayers to do that very thing too, doesn't he? That's why we pray. It's because we know that, we don't know exactly how it works, but we know that somehow our prayers bring about the very perfect plan of God. And so because Jesus makes atonement for our sin, we must side with the Lord and live according to his word. Well, let's look at sin's consequence, this third part of Exodus 32, verses 15 to 35. God wasn't the only one upset, right? Moses is enraged also. And so when Moses heard the dancing and the singing, it says he burned with anger and he broke the stone tablets, giving this visual picture of the relationship between God and Israel as having been broken. And so as Moses came near the camp, he didn't hear sounds of war, but sounds of celebration, he, he says in verse 18. But he said, it is not the sound of shouting for victory or the sound of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. Well, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul, the apostle, references this golden calf incident and he warns Christians. He says that the things in the Old Testament took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. 
They might have been singing, but it wasn't true worship of God. Right? True worship of God is based upon a right perception of God. We must know God as he truly is, not whatever image we want him to be. So how do we know if we're making God into any image we want? Well, I think sometimes a good clue is, is anytime we hear statements like, I could never worship a God who, because we see something difficult in the Bible, we might be making God into our own image or into an image we want him to be. If we only know the God of the New Testament and not as God, as his completely revealed word is, then we might be making God into an image we want him to be, not what he truly is. And these are not theoretical ideas, okay? I hear these week in and week out. I I was meeting with a pastor last week who said, I do not preach out of the Old Testament. He's been in ministry for 30 years. I think that's a problem. We need to be careful that we are not making God into any image we want. We must, to have true worship, we need to worship him as he really is. Even when the hard things in the Bible are there. So how do we fight against making God into any image we want? Well, I think it starts by knowing God's word and letting God's word shape our understanding of God and how we are to trust him. We would be fools if we studied what happens at Mount Sinai with Israel and if we didn't learn from it. If our experience is the primary method of how we are going to grow as Christians, then we are going to miss on all sorts of stuff that God has put in here for our instruction that Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10. You don't have to experience something to know that it's wrong. We actually have the revealed truth of God that we can rely on, that is trustworthy. And so we don't have to have the primary experience of of growing to be what we experience. We can learn from God's word. Otherwise, we will miss what God has for us here. So Moses takes the bull, he grounds it up into powder, he throws it in the fire, and he makes Israel drink it. I mean, we can easily say from that that sin tastes bad, right? Okay, (laughs) easy application there. Uh, But that's okay, because as a famous uh, old Puritan once said, until sin is bitter, Christ will not be sweet. Until sin is bitter, Christ will not be sweet. And so we see the sorriest excuse of BS from Aaron Okay, Moses confronts Aaron, and Aaron's like, I threw it in the fire just like you did, Moses, and out popped a calf. Just like Adam in the Garden of Eden, Aaron blames another. I threw him in the fire, almost giving the impression like he was burning it up like Moses did, and out pops this golden calf. It's magic, right? Aaron certainly didn't say he chiseled it. So in an important come-to-Jesus moment, Moses effectively draws a, a line in the sand in verse 26, and he asks, who is on the Lord's side? 
Moses is trying to assess the damage. And the only ones who return to God, do you guys see that? The only ones who repent are the Levites, the kin of Moses and Aaron. That's why the Levites become the special tribe designated for the worship of God as priests in verse 29. Not because they were perfect, because they repented. Sometimes it's easier to die for a cause than to live for one. Moses was asking, who would return and live for the Lord? Right, if someone has placed a gun to your head and asked you, whose side are you on? Are you on the Lord's side? My hope is that you'd say yes. I have confidence many of you would actually say yes. But what about when we're caught in sin and we're asked, who is on the Lord's side? Will we repent? Right, the sign for those on the Lord's side wasn't the sacrifices that they made, but the repentance in their lives. You might have the most beautiful singing voice. You might have the most stunning mind and understand every Bible verse, but without repentance from rebellion against God, you're not on the Lord's side. Jesus warns us that not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Some will prophesy. Others will cast out demons in his name and do other mighty works. But Jesus will say, depart from me for I never knew you. What is it that Jesus calls us to do? Well, if you remember our very first memory verse when we started the gospel of Mark. Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, right? Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is here. Repent and believe in the gospel. We're called to repent and believe. Sin brings guilt. Repentance brings mercy. So make no mistake about whose side you're on. We are called to repent and believe in the good news of the gospel today. Sin is rejecting God, but repentance is coming to the Lord's side. And so when we sin, friends, return to God. Don't turn away from God. When we sin, that's not the time to continue to turn away from God. It's the time to run back to God and know his mercy. So when we sin, return to God, not away from him. Because the Levites, they weren't sinless. They just returned to God. And so maybe you're someone who's living in sin. The call is to repent and to come to Jesus and know the full measure of his forgiveness. Because the seriousness of the situation is reflected by the action that's demanded by Moses on behalf of God. Right? Verses 27 and 28 say this. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp, and each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. 
3,000 died that day. Why only 3,000? Right? The numbers of, of Israel estimated by every historian is much larger than that. Why only 3,000? And, and maybe, maybe we should be asking, why not also Aaron? Because he's not part of that 3,000 that dies, right? Uh, most likely, I think they were the people who were kind of caught in the act, so to speak. The tribe of Levi goes into the camp. Uh, and so those who were still worshiping this golden calf, even after Moses has, well, he, he ground it up, but, but those who have not turned back, so they're kind of the ones who are caught in the act. They're not necessarily more wicked than the others, especially since Aaron isn't numbered here, but probably the ones who were not turning back. Friends, I think this is a good call for us to just affirm a couple things. Uh, first is that we should be saddened but not surprised by sin. Often we read passages like this and we just think, oh, Israel just doesn't get it. Oh, dumb Israel. We see the anger of God against sin and we think, therefore, to love what God loves and to hate what God hates, we must respond in equal anger when we see the sin in the lives of our loved ones and friends. We see God distancing himself from Israel and we think we need to do that. We need to put people who sin at arm's length from us. Well, brothers and sisters, let me actually encourage you not to do that. (laughs) Because we are not to be okay with sin, okay? We're not to live in sin, uh, but there's a major difference between God and us as we respond to to the sin of others. God is holy and we are not. God is the judge over all the earth and we are fellow servants of God. So therefore, Christian, Christian brother and sister, we are not so holy that sin cannot even be in our presence. We all have sinned. And therefore, because other people's sin looks different from ours, doesn't mean we push them away. We should be saddened by it, but we should not be surprised by it as if I have to get away from you. There is not a single temptation in this world, the New Testament says, that isn't common to humanity. And so when we seem surprised by sin, I think it actually only reveals that we don't know the very nature of our own sin nature very well. When exposed to sin, don't be surprised by it. Point them to the redemptive love of Christ and promise to walk with them through it. We are not as holy as we would like to believe we are. And we have sinned more than we would like to admit. And so sin in the lives of others should humble us because it is only by the grace of God we are where we are. Right, it's, it's Valentine's Day, uh, which is a weird holiday for Christians. Uh, Valentinius was this Roman Catholic dude, and in that time, uh, being a Christian was outlawed, and also getting married as a Christian was outlawed. But Valentinius, this Roman Catholic, was willing to marry Christians together, and he would not give them up so they wouldn't go to jail. And so Valentinius, 
died because of it. He was beheaded, which puts a whole other perspective on the color red for Valentine's Day, right? They killed and jailed people to keep the beliefs and their practices of God. We see Israel killing people to keep their practices of the worship of God. Okay, we do not do that today. We do not say that we take the sword or gun or any other weapon to someone because they do not worship us, or definitely not if they worship us, uh, but it's not our job to take a sword and to kill others in the name of God. Okay, I think it's important in this day and age when, when Christians are seen as, as this radical group, we should say this is not a practice that we have. And if it is, it is not one that follows the love displayed by Jesus. We do not, it's not our job to take a sword and to kill others in the name of God. Our passage concludes with Moses then interceding again for Israel hoping that he would, would make atonement for their sin, and, and God instructs Moses to follow God's angel, which will lead Israel to this promised land as God had promised. But God did not ignore Israel's sin. He sends a plague upon them because of their sin. The idolatry of the people at Sinai had not resulted in their destruction, but God had been faithful to his original intent. God spared the nation for its original purpose, to be a light to the world. Their sin was serious, but in God's mercy, he did not blot them out. And so we see from the very early pages of the Bible a pattern of the mercy of God. We know specifically that because Jesus makes atonement for our sin, we must side with the Lord and live according to his word. So how serious is our sin against God? I think it's greater than we realize. But how much is God committed to his people? Enough to send his only son to the cross to redeem us. Praise the Lord for God's good mercy. Let's pray. What great hope and confidence we have in Jesus as our mediator before the Father. What great hope we have. As we leave today, hear our benediction from Ephesians chapter 6 that says this, May peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. May grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. Amen. Enjoy the rest of your Lord's Day.